Welcome to online worship at Chandler United Methodist Church. You know, it is your willingness to make that difficult connection between discipleship and intentional financial support, which is the reason that our church continues to be viable and faithful in mission and ministry. It was Jesus who told us that the best metric to measure our faith is where we put our money. He said it reveals where our heart is. There are links for online giving in the email that put this in your inbox, as well as on the church web page. These hot months of summer have been a good time, and we are pausing, we are retreating, we are reflecting on some Old Testament passages that Jesus would have known. They would have affected how he understood himself, how he saw his world and his role in it. You know, I've been thinking recently about how we have become, because of our iPhone, because of our Android phones, we have become masters of multitasking. Our phones have made it possible for us to engage in multiple interactions all simultaneously through a vast assortment of applications or apps. We can be wrapping up a sale for work while talking on the phone with our mother, while simultaneously liking a picture which somebody posted of their kids on Facebook, while simultaneously putting a meeting on our calendar, while also keeping track and participating in a Google Meet that we're supposed to be part of, while simultaneously taking a golf lesson to improve our swing, while at the same time playing an online game of chess with our daughter who is in her college dorm room in another state, all on our iPhone while pushing our child on the swing in the backyard. People who study such things tell us that our brains are capable of doing one thing and one thing only at a time. But with varying levels of success, we have figured out how to do one thing at a time, shifting back and forth between responsibilities and interests with amazing efficiency. And when the consequences of losing focus are a simple, oops, wrong move, or needing to apologize for losing focus, well, it works. The problem that we face is when our multitasking, we, we dare to add operating a motor vehicle to our activities. It turns out that driving a three-ton vehicle with momentum through a, a moving puzzle of other three-ton vehicles and pedestrians amid buildings and curbs and signposts and surprises requires everything we've got to stay out of accidents. And it turns out there are no exceptions. 
even though we may have managed just fine on numerous occasions to just look down for just a second to open or close or change an app on our phone, that doesn't mean we're going to get away with it this time. It is a deadly, dangerous choice. We all know this, and when we are in our right mind, we will acknowledge that distracted driving is very risky. It, it's dangerous. It, it is six times more likely to cause us to be in an accident than if we were driving drunk. And yet, in 2019, knowing how dangerous it, were, it is, there still were 1.6 million crashes related to distracted driving. 330,000 people ended up in the emergency room and 3,142 people died from crashes related to distracted driving. And strangely, it is not usually the driver who is injured or pays with their life. Most states have since cell phones came on the scene, most states and localities have put in place laws and statutes to discourage distracted driving. The message is very clear. Keep your eyes on the road. You don't know what's coming. Keep your hands on the steering wheel. Focus. That is precisely Habakkuk's point. He is in shock. He is appalled at what is happening around him, the decisions people are making. He lives in a culture of violence and destruction. People claiming to be people of the law, but who do anything but obey the law. He describes people in positions of power making a mockery of the judicial system. And because the wicked seem to far outnumber and have a stronger lobby than those who are decent, there is no hope for resolution. Habakkuk describes justice as paralyzed. He says the choices that people are making are the cause of great strife and conflict, which also then lends itself to injury and death. And yet people are careening forward in making these decisions. Nothing will stop them. Habakkuk describes the problem in terms which are terrifying. He says they are a self-serving law unto themselves. They decide unto themselves what is right. In other words, justice is what is good for the decider, what they can force on others, what they can get away with. Habakkuk has come into the presence of God and brought what is on his heart and on his mind. And he cries, he actually is angry with God. He goes after God. He said, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not listen. Habakkuk gives the impression 
that he thinks God is distant and distracted. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and notice injustice and trouble? Destruction and violence are ever before me. God, these people are running us toward an inevitable destruction. We need an intervention from on high. Why aren't you doing something? Now, just hearing that, it's hard to dispute Habakkuk's conclusion that his world is careening forward toward destruction, and God is not paying attention. Habakkuk happens to be right. The tiny kingdom of Judah is in deep trouble. Judah is the southern of the two kingdoms of Israel. The problem is twofold. First, any public treasury can absorb some unexpected expenses for a while. But when public officials seem to be committed to being incompetent, and they are also fraudulent in their management, the treasury begins to run a debt. That is the case here in the nation of Judah, where public officials greatly enrich themselves, and the nation sinks deeper and deeper into debt to both the Egyptians to the south and the Babylonians to the north, so much so that Judah is no longer capable of managing its finances. Second, the leadership of Judah has been operating on the notion that they are distinctive and unique. They are exceptional, clever, highly intelligent, and therefore leaders of other nations are impressed with them, with their abilities and their insights. Other nations have been left with an impression, but not the way the leaders of Judah would have you think. Representatives from Babylon look upon the arrogant incompetence of Judah's King Jehoiakim, and they shake with laughter. They came up with a rather clever way to exploit his blinding conceit. Representatives from Babylonia have come, or Babylon, have come into Jerusalem. They are pressing on him to pay debts. He is trying to persuade them to lend, lend him more money, and he decides on the fly, while giving them a tour of the palace, that it would serve his purpose to show them the gold and jewels of the treasury hoping to impress them with the military tenacity which captured the gold and jewels and now defends it and hopefully then be able to secure further loans. Well, they say, that would be great. And they ooh and they ah at the gold and the jewels. And they announce that they will, in fact, extend more loans. But the next morning, the representatives from Babylon are gone, as is 
the entire treasury. King Jehoiakim, being quick on his feet, says the gold and jewels are all there in the treasury, but only visible to he and a few of his loyal cabinet members. He makes up a lie. He claims that it was rendered invisible to protect it. His supporters accept his word and stridently defend him. And now, because Judah cannot pay its loans and Babylon will not accept invisible gold, an invasion by their largest creditor, Babylon, is coming. Habakkuk is boldly bringing everything on his mind and in his heart into his conversation with God. He says to God, it's difficult to keep coming into your presence and laying out what is on my heart and mind when it looks like you are doing nothing and simply encouraging wickedness to thrive by doing nothing. God does respond. God tells Habakkuk, I am doing a word in your days, a work in your days, that you would not believe if I told you. And if we stop reading there, as church leaders usually do, this sounds like Habakkuk is quite hopeful in his message, especially if we jumped to the end of Habakkuk, and we add in the part about God's strength and rejoicing in God's way, which is what often happens in sermons about Habakkuk. In that case, Habakkuk is made into a book about waiting for God's will to be written in history. I am doing a great work in your time. And it's a witness then to the patience. Be patient amid injustice. Be serene about suffering brought on by deception, indecency, and greed. God is going to make it all right in God's time. But to do that, we have to skip over. We, we have to leave out. We have to omit. We, we have to fail to read everything in between. In fact, the book of Habakkuk is not about be patient for God to bring about justice inevitably. Be patient in your suffering. That is not what the book of Habakkuk says at all. In response to Habakkuk's anger and frustration, God says, I am doing a work in your days that you will not believe if I tell you. I am raising up the Babylonians, ruthless and nasty, feared and dreaded, to sweep across the face of the earth and seize all nations. They mock kings. They scoff at rulers. They laugh at fortified cities. Hordes of invading soldiers impenetrate nations like the wind, gathering prisoners like sand. 
sweeping over and conquering guilty people whose own strength is their God. Habakkuk is blown away by this and in struggling to get his brain around what God has just described, Habakkuk wonders out loud why God would use such an outright, wicked, brutal, unstoppable, oppressive, violent regime like Babylon to punish a small, comparatively mildly disobedient nation like Judah. God answers Habakkuk. And I implore you to read the book of Habakkuk. It's only three chapters. God answers Habakkuk's question about using Babylon to punish Judah. God says, it will take time to unfold, but the true loyalty of everyone on earth will be revealed. The exact same wickedness about which you complain in your countrymen, their arrogant practices, their unjust systems, their perversion of positions of power, their plunder of the poor, their exploitation of the vulnerable, their plotting and strategizing to overwhelm and conquer. Your countrymen who do these things will at first run toward and seek to embrace the power of the Babylonians because your countrymen deceptively trust their own arrogance. They believe that their craftiness and guile will impress the Babylonians and afford them position and rank amid the new court. But the treachery of the Babylonians will quickly overwhelm them, and your countrymen will suffer that same wickedness those same arrogant practices they've used on others will be used on them. The same unjust systems, the same perversion of power. And your countrymen will become servants and then slaves and then grist. They will be ground up in the machinery of the conquering Babylonian Empire. This is a terrible judgment. God is not done. God goes on, says, it will take time, linger, wait for it. The Babylonians are not right. They are puffed up. Their desires are not right. They are arrogant, and they are never at rest. They are greedy, never satisfied. They are gathering and making captive other people in the world. And what empires do to overwhelm and conquer and plunder other nations is what the Babylonians will do. They will pile up riches seized from invading lands. They will paint the landscape in blood, conquering by violence. They will make themselves wealthy by extortion devaluing people as a means of protecting their privilege, using that privilege to exploit the vulnerable. They will get in over their heads into debt. 
an overextension of supply lines and occupation forces. And all of this will come back to bite them and hard. Creditors will call in debts. Those whom they robbed will exact revenge. The relatives of those they have killed will come with a knife. Those who have abused power will become the prey of those they conquered. God says, because the Babylonians plundered so many, those left will plunder them. God says it will take time, linger, wait for it. Justice will certainly come and will not be delayed. Then God says, woe to those whose own strength is their God. This is the judgment. This is the revelation told to Habakkuk. This is the pattern of history. The powerful local who exploit and conquer are then exploited and conquered by larger and more powerful forces, systems, and principalities. Nations becoming empires then overextend themselves in runaway levels of privilege they cannot afford or sustain. And they, those empires fall. And those people are reduced and conquered by the natural consequences of what they have created. This is an incredible judgment, not only of Judah and Habakkuk's fellow countrymen, but also of the empires which conquer small nations. This is a judgment of history. And in the midst of this great judgment, God offers one word of hope, a single sentence of promise. In the midst of powers and principalities, nations and empires careening forward in history, rising and falling, God declares, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. His soul is upright. We know that in the Old Testament Hebrew, the base word here, righteous, Sadiq is the Hebrew word, is from the royal court, and it has to do with the gift of access to the king. The word in this passage is ve-sadiq, and to add the prefix ve means one who does. It makes it active. It takes the idea of being the Sadiq, of receiving the gift, in, and it turns it into an action. In this case, meaning one who has received the gift of access and now steps forward, entering the presence of the king, engaging in, being shaped by conversation and time with the king. Such a person will live by his faithfulness. We have heard, we know, that faith in Hebrew, much like Greek, means believing in someone so strongly that we actively seek 
their way. We abandon our own way. We imitate them. We trust them so deeply that we dare to act on that trust. We want what they offer and we take steps in walking that way. Between the lines of describing in detail the way of his world and what it brings, Habakkuk also describes a faithful, righteous, remnant people standing guard of the ways of God. Habakkuk allows us to see righteous people who see what is happening around them and refuse to be silent. Habakkuk allows us to see a righteous people who see the exploitation of others, and even if they themselves are not personally impacted by the horrors perpetuated, they decline to be silent and complicit. Habakkuk shows us a righteous people who refuse to profit from dominance over others. Habakkuk shows us righteous people who will raise their voice in protest and put themselves at risk for the well-being of others. Habakkuk shows us righteous people who resist evil at every turn creating spaces of protection and sustenance for those in need. Habakkuk shows us a righteous people who say no to the powers of the world, even when it is not convenient to say no and there are risks involved. Habakkuk shows us righteous people do not turn away. And don't say, well, it's not as bad as it used to be, so that must mean it's good enough. Habakkuk shows us a righteous people who became righteous in the presence of God. God says to Habakkuk, those who come and spend time with me, follow my way will have their life in me. Habakkuk finishes his witness by saying, nations rise and nations fall. And though calamity is coming, I will find rest in the presence of God, my Savior. I will revel in walking in the ways of the Lord. We are contemplating these Old Testament passages which would have been known by Jesus, would have affected how he understood himself, how he saw his world, and his role in it. May the Spirit of God, whom we know in the person of Jesus Christ, go before you to show you the way behind you to nudge you forward when you are too frightened to move, above you to watch over you, beside you to be sometimes the only friend you have in this world, and within you that you might know peace. Be always in peace. Amen. Mm -hmm.